Welcome back to the middle of culture. I'm one of your co-hosts, Peter. And I'm your other erstwhile co-host, Eden. Eden, how the heck have you been? Pretty okay. Uh, you know, dog days of summer have mostly passed us by. Uh, there was a time, I think it was last week, uh, where we had, a, a, you know, the the official real temperature was like 98. Mm-hmm. But with the humidity as high as it was, the real feel was 126. Oh, my goodness. That sounds terrible. That's not livable. That's not. No. People shouldn't live in that. Uh-uh. That's Why do awful. we live here? That's awful. It's one of these things. Here's an interesting thing. I know that you lived previously on the East Coast where there's more humidity than you do in the Intermountain West where you currently live. Oh, yeah. Um, but there's a certain type of humidity that we get here in the in the heartland, in, in the Midwest. And it's caused by a phenomenon called corn sweats. <laughs> that sounds Are bad. Are you familiar I with don't, No, I don't want the corn sweats. I don't know what it is, but it sounds bad. I don't want the corn sweats either. However, we get them. What corn sweats are, um, when it gets really warm and the corn are being really, uh, are like ramping up their like last bit of growing to like set up, like to grow the kernel, to grow the cob, they emit more uh, uh, um, moisture than they're taking in. Okay. And so they, they, increase the humidity wherever they are that's all and when you live in a state that the two things we do with the vast majority of our land in this state is pig shit and corn then when it's corn sweats time the humidity goes crazy that sounds terrible do not like it's real bad do not it's like real bad we need little. to stop growing so much corn and we need to get uh we need to literally decimate the amount of uh pig farms that we have and like start growing things that matter but things that matter aren't what make large farms big bucks so Mm -hmm. we keep making corn for ethanol subsidies yeah that sounds terrible welcome to america yeah right uh we're fortunate it it never got that hot we had a few days that were above uh, 100 and then today delightfully has been gray kind of rainy and in the 70s like it's, I'm loving it. It's beautiful, but that's just me. Other people are whiny. Today was much better. We were like upper seventies, low eighties and, and over overcast, mostly cloudy, basically all day. And, uh, we'll be a little hot tomorrow again, like upper eighties, but it's going to mostly be cool. And, uh, you know, my, my partner and I are getting ready to go out of town and she has just told, she, she was telling me last night as we were laying in bed, she was like, I have decided the weather will be nice. I haven't looked at it. I'm not going to look at it. Mm. But I have decided that the weather will be nice while we're up at the lake house. So Excellent. apparently, according to her, the weather will be nice. <laughs> I certainly hope that that is the case. So I guess we'll see. Well, anything you've been into lately that uh, you wanted to bring up before we dive into our topic of the week? Sure. I have a few things I'd like to chat about. Firstly, dear listeners... It's important for you to know. It's important for us to make this statement, I think. Our original plan for today was to watch a Hollywood-produced film. However, in solidarity with the striking SAG-AFTRA and WGA uh, workers, 
we are doing what SAG-AFTRA has asked and not doing a podcast that promotes a Hollywood property. So we are not going to be talking about that movie. And consequently, I am not going to tell you all my thoughts on the Barbie movie. So maybe <laughs> whenever good. whenever the strikes are over, hopefully the workers get everything that they're asking for because fuck a boss. Sure. Uh, then I can tell you about the Barbie movie. I look forward to hearing about it. I will say that uh, as of uh, this very moment, I am now the only member of my family who has not seen it. So, uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing about it uh, when it seems appropriate. And I do want to thank you for um, bringing this up and uh, prompting us to change our plan for the week. It's just one of those things that, like, is anyone going to actually care or find out that this tiny podcast by these two siblings talked about some 70s movie? No. But also, if I think that worker solidarity is important and I think that strikes are important and that that is the way that workers can collectively uh, cause action and therefore, you know, receive the rights due to them as workers. The least I can do is solidarity with them. And if this is what they've asked for, that's what I'll get from me. There you go. Well, but I have other things I can talk about too. Let's hear. Do tell. So I've been playing two video games. Uh, I mostly threw one of them, and then I just kind of like haven't played it in a few days. I'll probably go back to it, though. Um, so the sequel to this game just came out, but I've been playing the earlier, uh, you know, the first one. I've been playing Remnant from the Ashes, okay. um, which is what if Dark Souls but gun? Oh, okay. And do you know what I'm better at than sword? Gun. Gun. Because then I can pew pew from far away. Um, and so basically that's what Remnant is. It has a lot of the uh, the mechanics of a Souls-like game. You know, you have to go to checkpoints where you, re- where you rejuvenate, you refill your healing items, you refill your ammo, and every enemy respawns except for bosses who you've beaten. And you have to go around. There's multiple branching paths. There's lots of ways around. You know, all the sorts of stuff you get out of a traditional Souls-like game, only this time, I've got a rifle and a pistol and a sword. So, doing well, it's more of a machete, but still, doing pretty good. Cool. Um, I'm really liking it. Uh, it's not a perfect game. You can definitely tell it's a first game by a studio, but it's really cool and is doing a lot of really cool things. Um, one of the things I really like about it is, you know, in the cosmology of this world, you you know transport from world to world to to all these different places um through the checkpoint system and consequently they're able to have a lot of varied environments Um, okay which apparently is much more the case in the second film like the environments are way wilder and way weirder um but i do like that that's part of this game fundamentally is like you know, there is a there's a one world you go to where it's a desert. There's one world you go to where it is a you know jungle. There's you know, it starts on the planet Earth, which is like a a post apocalyptic wasteland where you find yourself, where everything's overgrown. It feels like you know that sort of sort of vibe. Um, but I'm really liking it. I think it's a pretty fun game. Um, I'm very curious to play the second one. I'm not, I'm not $50 curious, which is why I haven't purchased it yet, but I'm like 
20 or 30 dollars curious so if and when it goes on sale in a few months i'll probably pick it up because i've heard that it's even better um i'm really having a fun time with it though it's a very cool game and wasn't it in uh, humble choice or something because i'm, I'm sure, it sure was. i have it and i did not pay for it individually it I'm, wasn't something i consciously bought yeah i i am i am certain that it was a humble choice um because that is also why i had it i had heard of it um and my eye was kind of on it uh but i'm but you know when i was like oh yeah that when the sequel was like imminent was in the next week or two i was like oh yeah i'm pretty sure i have that and i do um with the dlc so even better so i'm sure that you do too um it's pretty cool i'm really having a fun time with it um I know that the second one, it, it has, you know, classes you can pick from. Mm-hmm. Um, in the second class, one of the classes is dog. You can have a dog as well as a gun, and that's even better. So nice. that's an exciting thing about playing Remnant 2 is I could have dog and gun. Cool. So I'll get there eventually. I'm having fun. Um, but then the other thing I've also been playing is a farm sin called Sunhaven. Um, I've been like, I was like, downloading games to get ready to go out of town you know making sure that they Mm -hmm. were all on my uh my steam deck and you know crossplay is really nice so i download them to my pc and then they get ported over to the steam deck and i can play them both places it's handy um so i've been looking at some farm sims because those are easy games to like just pick up and play for a little bit and then set down you don't feel the pressure to be like oh i gotta i gotta save the world it's just a farm sim Mm -hmm. Um, so I've been playing this one called Sunhaven, which is, if I were to describe it, similarly to the way I described Remnant, I would say, what if Stardew Valley, but for furries? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's like Stardew Valley. You go around and meet a bunch of people, but like, do you want to be a human or an elf or a demon or a lamia? Or like a cat person or a dog person or a lizard person. <laughs> and so you have all these options of what kind of person you want to be. And, you know, you, you move to this town and you start farming and you do all sorts of weird stuff. And the, you know, the, the dragon that is protecting that town is like, yo, bad stuff is coming. So you're going to be my emissary farmer because I need an emissary. So go do this stuff for me. And, you know, you're going around town, you're going in the mines, you're doing some combat in the woods to try to get stronger and get more resources. You're flirting with all of the, you know, women in the town, because who wants to flirt with a man? Not this guy. Um, But so anyway, uh, been building my relationship with all the people in the town. And then eventually the dragon's like, hey, you got to go find the Alpha Village. And I was like, what Alpha Village? And I went through the woods very far and found the elf village where they presented me with another farm. And they were like, welcome farmer. Now you have two farms, one in this one in the elf village and one in the regular village. <laughs> um, so luckily there's a griffin there. And if I give the griffin a berry, he flies me back and forth between my farms. Um, and I'm having a good time with it. I'm currently in the elf farm. I know there's a demon farm out there because I ran into some demon people who I haven't met yet. And I'm like, I know they gotta be a demon farm out there that I'm going to get. This is going to be a three farm game for sure. Mm -hmm. So I'm having a fun time with it. 
Nice. And then the last thing I want to mention, I've been reading um, some comics. Uh, I think I mentioned previously that I was finally able to get volume three of Kaoru Mori's Emma. Um, so I've gotten the first couple of volumes of that read. Really enjoying it. It was really fun in that first volume to see how much she grew as an artist. I think I maybe talked about this already. Mm-hmm. But regardless, um, I also read the first two volumes of a brand new comic that's been coming out called She Loves to Cook and She Loves to Eat, um, which is a comic about this woman who lives alone and really loves to cook and wants to make like big elaborate meals, but she doesn't eat that much. So she only makes small meals and she wishes she could make very large, you know, uh, meals. And then she runs into her neighbor who is this extremely tall, extremely broad woman who, as they're getting in their, their elevator to go to their apartment one day has like a 20 piece bucket from KFC. And so the neighbor was like, oh, you got a bunch of stuff to, like, have KFC for the week. And she was like, no, I'm eating this all tonight. (laughs) And so then the other woman is like, oh, what if I make huge food for my neighbor? And that is how they become friends, is one of them makes enormous meals and then they eat them together. And it's a very interesting comic because... You're going to be like, why are you reading this, Eden? But I'm going to say it anyway. You can tell that the creator has a fetish for watching people eat food. Like, you can tell that that is like, uh, fundamentally, this is a fetish book. But it's like, for the most innocuous, chaste fetish that you could possibly imagine. Because it's not sexual in any way, shape, or form. It's not like salacious. It is just watching this very large woman eat, eat very large portions of food with gusto. But it's also an extremely tender um, exploration of how you become a friend as an adult when you're single and like don't have family or anything. Like that's hard. It's really hard. It's even hard when you do have that stuff. But like, especially if you live alone, it's so hard to make friends with people and to find connection. And so for these two women to have become friends with one another and to build this friendship organically, which has by the end of volume two become more than friendship. Like they truly have come to really care for each other. And um, the one woman who does all the cooking has like this epistemological break where she's like, oh no, I think I'm attracted to her. What does that mean? And so like, she's clearly a person who has lived a very sheltered life, doesn't know anything about like, you know, same gender attraction. So she does some Googling and she's like, lesbian? The word is lesbian? Is that what I am? Am I one of those, I guess? And uh, it's just very tender and like heartfelt and sweet in a way that I wasn't necessarily expecting. Um, so I really had a good time with it. I'm very curious to read the third volume when it comes out later this year. Cool. But yeah, anyway, that's what I've been doing. What have you been up to? Um, so I have, you know, not a lot. I, um, still slowly working on the wheel of time. Kind of, sort (laughs) of, we'll talk more about books in just a, a minute. Spoilers. Um, a couple albums that came out recently that I think are worth bringing up briefly. 
Um, the band Rannoch uh, released their new album, Conflagrations. Uh, it's a very interesting blend of some, some death metal, some black metal, very progressive elements, some jazz influences, uh, and kind of goes all over the place. And uh, I have been enjoying it, uh, though I will admit things have been busy enough that a lot of times when I'm turning on music, it's stuff that I'm very familiar with. Uh, so it can just kind of run in the background, whether it's clinic or when I'm, I'm running or lifting or something like that. Um, and so I haven't had the time to sit down and really appreciate it. Uh, but the bits that I, I have, I've been impressed. Uh, don't know if you were aware of this. Uh, Seven Dust just released a new album, Truth Killer. And uh, it's very Seven Dust. I mean, Seven Dust has been incredibly consistent over the years. Uh, for good or bad. Um, it is not an album that I will listen to start to finish, uh, but there are definitely some good tracks on it. And again, sometimes I, I really like uh, the sound that Seven Dust makes. And I think that LeJohn Witherspoon, the lead vocalist, has a great voice and uh, is a little unique in that style of music. And so it's kind of nice to hear that. Um, there's an app I want to mention. Uh, because it is uh, a very, it's fairly inexpensive. I want to say it's maybe $4.99, uh, but it is, uh, it is brilliant. It is fantastic. It is excellently made. Uh, I have been using it for uh, four and a half weeks, almost five weeks now. Uh, it is wonderful. It is called Watch 25K. So as I may have mentioned a couple weeks ago, you know, I'm, I'm really starting to focus on a little bit more my physical health as well as some other things that I want to do. And as part of that, I decided I was going to start running again just two times a week. There's a whole complicated thing involving lifting weights six days a week, running twice, riding a bike twice, jumping rope twice, all sorts of stuff. Anyway, the running, I wanted to start off with the couch to 5k program because it has been many years since I ran. Uh, you know, I, I used to run regularly. I've run three marathons. I've done a bunch of half marathons, um, but it's been a while. I think really since the last time I messed up my knee uh, since I ran. And so I decided I wanted to start doing it again and watch to 5k. You buy it on the phone and then it has a companion watch app, but really the only part that matters is the watch. So yes, this is an Apple watch app. Yes, I am deep into the Apple ecosystem. My just, you know, whatever. That's the way I am. And that is a bit of a change as a, who used to be a very hardcore Windows guy. So uh, what I do is I've, I've loaded some playlists of music on my Apple Watch. I have paired a pair of headphones with my Apple Watch. And so when I get up tomorrow morning, very early, because both I have to because of work, but also you know, I don't really need people observing the catastrophe that is me running these days, but Hey, that's okay. But so I just pop in the headphones, open the music app on my watch, start playing a playlist. And then I go to watch to 5k and it has in there programmed into the watch, every single one of the workouts for the nine week program. And I don't run with my phone. I don't have to do anything. I just have the watch on my wrist, headphones in my ear, start listening to music, hit go, and it just walks you right through it. When to walk, when to run, all that stuff takes you through it. It works flawlessly. It gives really nice data using the GPS in the watch when it's all said and done. Um, it's, I was trying to make 
my own kind of couch to 5k thing with different timer apps that I had. And I was really frustrated and upset with them. And, and then I found this one and boy, howdy, I tell you it, if anyone wants to start running and wants to use the couch to 5k program, I cannot recommend watch to 5k enough. If you are in the Apple ecosystem, it is excellent. Uh, it's made by one guy and I just wanted to bring it up because I love when you find these sort of bespoke, you know, really con, uh, really focused apps made by one or two people. Uh, and I think that it's fantastic and I wanted to get it out there. The final thing I want to mention, and I hope that this doesn't really, and, I, and I'm going to make it brief because I don't want to sort of violate the spirit of, of respecting SAG after and stuff, but I have to say, I have to get this off my chest. Eden, have you watched Secret Invasion on Disney Plus? No, I don't care about that shit. It is the worst. It is there you go. the worst Marvel property I have ever seen. I like, mean, that's pretty excuse bad. Me. It is the worst MCU related Marvel property I have ever that's seen. That's still pretty bad. Um, it, it is, it, it, it writes a check that it is absolutely incapable of cashing. Are you ever going to watch it? No. Okay. Then I'm just going to look and listen, people spoilers. I don't care. It's bad. First of all, Nick Fury, Nick Fury sucks. We find out that all of these times we thought that Nick Fury was ahead of things because he's smart and he was always one step ahead of people. It's only because for the last 30 plus years, he has basically enslaved Skrull to impersonate other people and be his spies everywhere. So it's not because he Bro. knows anything or he's good in any way. It's because he has been taking advantage of the Skrulls and using them to find out all this stuff. So he alone, pretty worthless. Finally, the, the thing I just want to say is the, and, and this is okay. Star Wars episode eight the last Jedi or whatever the crap that stupid movie was called. It breaks almost all of star Wars in that scene where whatever Admiral, what's her face accelerates to hyperspace or whatever. I can't, I can't even remember anymore, which is star Wars and which is star Trek, but like destroys the enemy fleet by just accelerating to hyperspace through them completely yeah. breaks all of star Wars because you just sit there and go, well, why didn't they just do that all the time then if it was that powerful? Why didn't they do that to the Death Star? They do a similar thing where they have now, perhaps without thinking about it, which makes me even more concerned, but they have completely ruined the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And they've done so because, you know, part of this secret invasion storyline, they want to work in the idea of Super Scroll, but we don't have the Fantastic Four. So basically we've got this bad scroll who's, adopting the powers and blah, blah, blah. At some point, Nick Fury is sending out scroll to collect the DNA of all of the bad people and the Avengers after the battle of earth. And we end up with a character played by Amelia Clark, who has basically absorbed the abilities of every single Avenger and many of the enemies. We see things like Cole Obsidian. We see them using Ebony, Ebony Ma's powers. They think at one point their arm even looks like Thanos. So now we have a character who has all of the powers of all of the superheroes. Oops, all powers. 
How does that not completely fuck up the entire, entire universe? I'll tell you how. Because nobody fucking watched that show, and so they're never bringing Amelia Clark back for anything. Boy, it was rough. That character is gone forever. Sorry if you liked her, friends. It was so bad. It was so bad. And so many just missteps. And anyway, nobody should watch it. I feel bad saying it. I definitely am finding myself becoming less invested and interested in the Marvel stuff. And this one, like this is bad enough that uh, in a similar way to the way the prequels for Star Wars sort of turned me off for all Star Wars, no matter how good it may or may not be. This felt a little bit when I finished it, like it was similar to that. Like it's that bad. I, I genuinely think that the, the bubble might've burst on the MCU, bro. You know, it might be game over for those guys because, like, I don't know a single person who has cared about a single Marvel thing that has come out since uh, the last Spider-Man movie. Yeah, I was gonna say like, No Way Home. Was nobody probably the last like really. Like, Black Panther came out, and I went and saw it, and I was like, that was fine, and I've never thought about it again. Mm-hmm. So clearly, it's not that good if it had literally no sticking power in my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, I never saw Ant-Man. I never saw Guardians of the Galaxy. Thor Love and Thunder fucking sucks. Uh, I didn't watch Secret Invasion. I'm not going to be watching Loki Season 2, which I just saw an advertisement for. Like... I think I'm done. I think I'm maybe just done and will maybe the same thing has happened to me with Marvel movies that has happened to me with Marvel comics. There are very few characters that I still pick up their comic book every month when it comes out because I just already do it. Yeah. It is She-Hulk. It is Captain Marvel. It is Miss Marvel. And those are the three Marvel comics that I buy. Guess what Marvel properties I'll probably check in on if they show up in the future. I'll probably go see the Marvels and I'll probably check in on a season two of She-Hulk if that happens. And other than that, I kind of feel like the curse has been lifted. The evil has been defeated. (laughs) I can do something else with my precious time. Yeah. Like I say, I just had to get secret invasion off my chest because uh, it it was, here's the thing. Talking about it might not be following the letter of the law, but telling everybody who listens to this podcast that it was terrible, no one should watch it, and it maybe broke the MCU for you, I think is following the spirit of the law, because I don't think any of our listeners are going to turn around now and say, you know, I should just pull up my Disney Plus and check out Secret <laughs> Invasion. And they should not. They should not. So I think so. the spirit, of, I think the spirit of, sol- of solidarity has been maintained. I'm glad. I was hoping so. <laughs> So, so what is our topic for the day? Well, this could be really short. It could be really long. I don't know. But what we kind of thought about and what I suggested when we decided to, you know, rise up in solidarity and uh, not watch this Hollywood movie uh, was to talk about books. And I have a pretty big list of things that I want to bring up. And some of these we may talk about very briefly and some may be a little longer, but they're just sort of books that we have read, books that had impact on uh, our lives, on perhaps our likes, our dislikes, things that have been, you know, I kind of broke mine down into three categories 
I've got what I'm calling the foundational sort of books that I think really shaped the way I approach fiction. Uh, then I've got kind of the modern movers and shakers, things that are more recent, uh, that, you know, it's kind of like, here's the chunk of things that were in my before the age of 20. Here's the chunk of things between 20 and now. And then finally, I've got the things that I'm going to talk about briefly that are just bad, bad books. <laughs> so, um, I don't I know. I have Did a similar, you... I, I have a similar breakdown based on our text the other day. I, you know, I wrote down some that are like really influential to me, some things I really loved, just a couple things I really hate and some stuff I think is really overrated. Excellent. So I was thinking, you know, don't know what, how long each other's lists are, but we could start off just going back and forth one, uh, one book or one item on our list at a time, kind of talk about it. If the other person has, um, feelings about it and wants to share, we'll do that. And, uh, if it's something that, you know, only one of us has, uh, has read, then we can move on to the next person. How does that sound? I think that sounds great. All right, so I'm going to start. I yes, think go this ahead, is please. going to be very fun because I think we're going to have extremely different lists <laughs> because as I was writing down my influential books, I was like, I'm such a pretentious asshole. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you recognize that. I'm just kidding. But what I do think, I was thinking the same thing. As I was making my list, I was like, you know, these are going to be very, very different. And mine are pretty lame. I'm the first to admit it. I am a simple, basic bitch. You can be the pretentious asshole. I'll be the basic bitch. Look, I have a PhD in literature. What the hell do people want from me? And see, my counter for me is that I have, a, you know, I'm a medical doctor who literally has sacrificed so many years of my life by losing sleep and working 80 to 125 hours a week that sometimes my reading is going to be like, can I please turn my brain off for the most part and just sort of veg out while I look at words. So that's, that's my defense is to why uh, so many of my books are so basic. And again, I'm the basic bitch of the duo. You know what? There's nothing wrong with that. I was talking with some <laughs> friends just earlier today. I No, I was talking to some friends earlier today and it was in a discord. And one of my friends in the discord was like phones, phone lock screen check-in. So everyone was posting, you know, screenshots of their lock screen check-in, their lock screen. I have the most basic bitch lock screen in the world. It's just the Sailor Scouts. It's just the Sailor Scouts. And it's like, <laughs> I'm just kind of a basic bitch. So it's okay to be a basic bitch is what I'm saying. I mean, I am. So, you know, it's cool. And in the spirit of that basicness, I'm going to start off with the sword of Shannara and I'm going to pronounce it that way. And I don't care what Terry Brooks wants. I don't care what Terry Brooks says. So why am I bringing up the sword of Shannara? Well, look, it was, and this is one of these funny things that stuck with me. Do you, does anybody know, do you remember how many pages the trade paperback copy of the sword of Shannara is? It's like 726 or something. That is exactly like that. right. It is 726 because when I, I started knew that reading, number in my brain, I know for the same reason I do, because I started reading the sword of Shannara in, I think third grade. And I was so excited to be reading this 726 page fantasy book. I read the Sword of Shannara. I read the Elfstones, the Wish Song. I read a bunch of them. I haven't read any of the ones written in probably the last 
20 years, maybe a little bit more than that. But at the time, I really, really enjoyed The Sword of Shannara. I've tried to go back and read it. It's rough. Can't do it. But at the time, that was, for me, actually the book that set me on the path of really liking epic fantasy. And while I don't think that Terry Brooks's stuff really hangs with some of the other more recent epic fantasy, it's a little more simple. It's a little more easy to get into, but that's okay. But for me, it was super foundational because really that was where I was like, okay, I'm liking this. It's a big, long book with, you know, just, just a lot in it. And kind of in that fitting that epic fantasy, we've got to save the world, good against evil sort of thing. Uh, and this, for me, was my introduction. So there's my first entry. Thoughts, comments, or what's your next, your first one? Um, I also read the sort of sh- sh- uh, the sort of Shannara, not Shannara. I don't care what he says. <laughs> uh, but it's so, after I met him that one time. Like Shannara was in my brain so strong, even though I hate the way it feels coming out of my mouth that I still sometimes think of it that way. It does feel dirty. Um, it feels gross. It's just the, the mouth feels wrong. So I also read that as a very, as a very young person. Um, and it was foundational. I'm going to start with maybe the most basic bitch answer that I could possibly start with. This is not even on my written down list, but after hearing you talk about sort of Shannara of Shannara, it's the Hobbit, dog. <laughs> like, I read The Hobbit when I was like seven, and that uh-huh. book slaps. And it's clearly the best book Tolkien ever wrote <laughs> by a country mile. Sorry, not sorry, The Lord of the Rings. It still hangs. Lord of the Rings, if you try to read Lord of the Rings in 2023, and you're like, Whew, it's it's fine. It's a, I, see why, I see why everyone has been cribbing this for 70 years, but... <laughs> whew, you read The Hobbit and you're like, oh, what a weekend. What a pleasant, what a pleasant spree. Uh, rules. It's just a good book. That's all I'll say about The Hobbit. Okay. Sounds good. My pretentious answers will be coming. Okay. Listeners, don't worry. Well, so my second answer then is uh, the basic extension of your answer, and that would be The Lord of the Rings. I actually have a hard time with The Hobbit. I really don't get that interested in it. Um, I... I'm definitely not one of the people who goes back and reads Lord of the Rings every year or two. I've read all three books, I think two, maybe three times. But again, it was that sort of, as you mentioned, everybody in fantasy has been influenced by Tolkien, whether they are stealing or copying ideas, building on the foundations that he went with, or at least in my opinion, in the case of, for example, George R.R. Martin, trying to just like drop their drawers and take a dirty, smelly shit all over Tolkien and kind of what he established as fantasy norms. But everybody, I think to some degree, and I think, you know, the further way we get probably is starting to vary, but for so many years, everything had some relationship to that in some way. And I, you know, I enjoyed it again. That was kind of the first thing I moved on to after I read the sort of Shannara was the, I think I read the Hobbit first, but then, then I said, okay, now I need to do the Lord of the Rings. And, um, I think I remember reading that in fourth grade. And again, you know, I don't go back and read it. I don't hold it in that regard that, you know, you hear some people holding it where it's almost like it's a religious tome for them. 
but I, I appreciated it. And, uh, it's, uh, again, in terms of what I enjoy and what I read, uh, absolutely foundational. Here's what I'll say. I do prefer the Hobbit. And every time I try to reread the Lord of the Rings, as soon as I get past, not stop at, but as soon as I leave Tom Bombadil, my interest plummets. <laughs> and that's, that's because old Tom Bombadil was a merry fellow. Bright blue his jacket was and his boots were yellow. I love that guy. I just like Tom Bombadil. What can I say? That's okay. Okay, my next That's answer. Cool. My next answer, like I say, uh, a little pretentious, but it's important as a foundational text for who I am as a person. Um, I started college back up. I, you know, I, I did a semester. I moved to New Mexico for two years. In case anyone didn't know, I grew up Mormon and served a Mormon mission in New Mexico, which is where I learned Spanish, which is why I have a PhD in Spanish. <laughs> um, but anyway, when I got home, I started taking, you know, Spanish literature classes at the university. Um, and I read a book by Miguel de Unamuno uh, called Niebla, Mist uh, in English. And that book was so important for who I am as a person and why I chose to study Spanish literature. Um, if you're not familiar with it, it's one of the like classics of early 20th century modernism, especially when it comes to Spain. Um, and it is a story that is about, you know, this, this, you know, kind of stuck in a malaise, you know, old rich person but not really rich anymore kind of you know where if you remember our spirit of the beehive movie that family where they like really didn't have the juice they used to have mm -hmm. like it's a big house but it's empty and they have you know staff but a lot less staff than i bet their parents and grandparents did and so it's about this person who's in the same situation he meets this beautiful girl in the street they fall in love and she basically fleeces him. She like, you know, convinces him to set up her ex-boyfriend so that he's not around to tempt her so that she can be with him. He sets him up with an apartment in a faraway city. And then of course, what does she do? She just ghosts and goes to live with her boyfriend because she he's dumb and she's smart. But the book is important because it ends with the main character being very pissed off that this all happened to him. So he hops on a train from Madrid to Salamanca where Miguel de Unamuno lives and shows up on the author's doorstep and says, why are you doing this to me? You're a dick. Like, why are you making my life suck? And Unamuno is like, because I want to, because I am the author. I am your God. And I can do whatever I want to you. And he's like, that's, that's terrible. Why would you do that? Don't do that. Like, don't don't make me suffer. And he's like, oh, dog, I'm going to make you suffer. I'm going to kill you because you showed up at my doorstep. And then, he, you know, they get in this big, uh, you know, fight about it. And eventually he, um, you know, goes home and just starts eating and eats until his stomach explodes and he dies. And that's how the book ends. Hmm. And like, it sounds weird. You like hear me say it and I'm like, okay, what is this book? But like, it was one of the first books where I saw that like interplay between author and and creation and like referred and referent and all of these sorts of things made me think about uh, 
literature in a way that I had never thought of literature before. Um, and consequently, Miguel de Unamuno, the writer, became one of my favorite authors. And I, you know, went to grad school with the idea, I am going to focus on La Generación del 98, this group of authors of which Unamuno is, is one of the more prominent ones. I'm going to focus on them. I had an idea of what I wanted to do for a dissertation based on this, you know, this generation of authors and this weird you know, internecine period of the Second Spanish Republic when they were all writing. And that was very formative to the choices that I will talk about a little later. But uh, that's a really important book for me. Excellent. Well, so my next entry uh, is a series of books, and it is uh, The Chronicles of Prydain. And Hell yeah. When I was younger, I don't think I truly appreciated how magical these books are. And as an adult and having gone back and read them to some of my children, um, people, I'm just going to give you a little preview to the bad that's coming later. Uh, to a number of my children, I read aloud to them the Harry Potter books. And at, then at some point I decided I needed to read something to my children that wasn't dog shit. And so then I hey, read yeah. the Chronicles of Perdain. And Which I will never good. forget sitting there reading, um, and I reading the High King to my oldest, and as Cole, son of Colfrur, is dying and has sacrificed himself, I am ugly crying, like <laughs> tears are running down my face, and I cannot speak because I am so moved by the sacrifice that this noble farmhand has made to save the, the land of Pradain. And even just thinking about it, I mean, I am, I'm, my eyes are misting up and stuff because they are so incredibly good. And yeah, they're YA novels. And yeah, they're fairly short. And you know what? They are some of the absolute best fantasy and best sort of Bildungsroman novels that I think have ever been written. They are beautiful. The characters are well-realized. They are relatable. They are, I mean, you've got everything you need in an epic fantasy. You have the battle between good and evil. You have magic. You've got sorcery. You've got, you know, warriors and this, that, and the other. But when you get right down to it, these are stories about people. And the way they grow and the way they change. And, and as the main character, Taryn accepts the responsibility, he goes from wanting nothing more than to be a hero to begrudgingly accepting his role as the hero of Pradain, as he has grown and developed over the course of these novels. It is beautiful. They are wonderful books. And there are far too few people that when I'm talking about books and I bring this up, the vast majority of people just give me this, huh? Look, and it is a shame. They are marvelous. And Disney did them dirty by making a really bastardized story that they called the Black Cauldron. That was this weird mishmash of the first two books. 
that doesn't do the actual books and especially the second book, The Black Cauldron, it does not do it any justice because of the way that book actually culminates and and the climax of that. Um, but they're, oh, they're so good. And just talking about them makes me just want to evangelize them even more because more people should be reading and talking about these books and more kids should be reading and experiencing these books. I'm with you. We, uh, you know, we were walking out of seeing a film the other day, and I was talking with Cassie about how Greta Gerwig, after her success with the Barbie film, has apparently signed with Disney to make Chronicles of Narnia movies. Oh. To which I jokingly said, who cares about the Chronicles of Narnia and a big dumb lion who's actually Jesus? Where are my good Chronicles of Prydane movies? Yes. Yes. And I maintain that it's true. Do you know what's better than Narnia and Harry Potter combined? The Chronicles of Prydain. Oh, 100%. They're not even in the same league. These are like completely different. Uh, just, oh, yeah. So, so love these books. And uh, they're great. If you yeah. haven't read them, go read them. They're so good. They really are. All so right. My next one. Uh, this is a little nebulous, but I think it's worth mentioning in terms of like foundational influences because, you know, I talked about how I decided to go to grad school and I was like, I'm going to study early 20th century Spain. If you know anything about me, listeners, that's not what my dissertation's about at all. It's not, it's not about Spain at all because I don't think Spanish literature is worthy of my time and energy. <laughs> and that is thanks to a writer named Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, who is a nun from early New Spain um, from the 17th century, and reading her poetry and essays. Um, so that's that's how it's a book. It's the Obras Completas I have in the other room. It's her collected works. Um, and reading her poetry and essays was the thing that made me, that, that planted in me an interest in latin american literature that would eventually blossom into what i literally got my dissertation in um the way that she writes and the way that she frames things and the story of her life and you know the way that she encapsulates so many different uh emotions in her poetry you know there is you know she wrote some of one of the earliest proto-feminist poems ever written called hombres necios um and it is literally about why you know these terrible men are terrible because they treat women like crap and then they they slut shame them and like that is all they they only see us as madonnas or whores and all they are are these little boys who bring absolutely nothing to the world and it was just like yo the first time i read that um and so a combination of that and like getting to know her and what happened to her life because you know she was so well read in her time that you know a lot of people were looking to her were coming to visit her in the convent and all this sort of stuff and eventually that pissed the uh it pissed the um vi the viceroy and the the bishop off so the bishop decided to like stick it to her. And so uh, they like brought her up on all of these terrible charges and uh, eventually uh, 
you know, this, the bishop wrote a fake letter accusing her of all this stuff under the name of the nun Sorfirotea, who did not exist. And she wrote this response to Sorfirotea. Um, and it is like basically a response that, again, it's one of the really early feminist works, like fundamentally significant feminist writings as she advocates for women's intellectual rights and and the importance of women being able to live their own lives out from under the control of men, whether that be spouses or whether that be the church, um, and that women are, women are doing this anyway. And that is the thing that is most prevalent in her work is that women are doing this anyway. We are doing it in the kitchen and we are seeing we are seeing the stars in the flower on the table. And so who are you to help keep us from seeing the stars for ourselves, you know? And her work is just so incredible and so fundamental to me that it made me think about Latin America and Latin American literature a lot more uh, carefully and a lot more fully, which is why I eventually, during the course of my master's work, decided I think I want to focus on Latin America instead of Spain. And so that is why she's so important to me. Nice. So for my next one, I'm going to, and I'll make this one, I think fairly brief, but I'm going to definitely throw out the book childhood's end by Arthur C. Clarke. Um, childhood's end was, I think I might've got it through like a a scholastic book sale or something. I don't know, but I was very young when I first read it and child uh, childhood's end would be, Definitely the first of sort of my exposure to golden age of science fiction authors and works. And Childhood End is, uh, it's an interesting book. I, I look at the time I read it and I think I was way too young to really be appreciating it because it's kind of heavy um, the way it ends. And uh, really just so many of the things that it addresses but again, it was it was for me that first exposure to really sort of that golden age of science fiction. Uh, those authors, you know, Arthur C. Clarke and Ray Bradbury and uh, Asimov and, and sort of those guys. Uh, and, and Childhood End was one that stuck with me. I've read a bunch of other things by many of those authors. And I don't know if it's because it was my first or if because I think it's an underrated gem, but uh, I think Childhood's End really was the one that jumped out at me and and has stuck with me ever since. Nice. Um, next one I'll mention, I'll do really quick, um, was the first time that I read, again, I'm so fucking pretentious. <laughs> the first time I read the Florentine Codex, book 12 specifically of the Florentine Codex, which I read for a course and is the reason why I am interested in the conquest, which is the entire basis of my entire dissertation, <laughs> was suddenly, okay, so I moved from Spain to Latin America, and then thanks to this book, I decided to focus specifically on the conquest, narratives of conquest, and the way that the conquest was told, both in in contemporary things, which is what the Florentine Codex is, and then eventually in present-day comic books, which is what, what my entire dissertation is about. 
Um, really quickly, the Florentine Codex was this huge, one of the earliest ethnographic research studies to ever exist um, under the auspices of this Franciscan friar named Bernardino de Sagún. And he basically put together all of the people who had gone to his students at the Colegio de Santa Cruz de Tlatelolco, and they put together an ethnography of what pre-Columbian Mexica or Aztec in the popular nomenclature, what Aztec life was like before the arrival of the Spaniards. And that is what book one through 11 are about. It goes into cosmology. It goes into, you know, ritual. It goes into economics, um, flora and fauna, um, and basically describes what the entire culture of, of the Aztec people was like. And then book 12, which was the last one completed and I think is the most important one, is telling the conquest story from the Tlatelolco point of view. In other words, Tlatelolco was one of the uh, allies of Tenochtitlan, which was the main power that was specifically conquered by the Spanish in ally with the Tlaxcaltecas. So this is specifically written from the point of view of the conquered, of those who were conquered. Um, And seeing the way that that text is navigated because the thing that's interesting about it is that it was written simultaneously in Nahuatl and Spanish at the same time. So if you look at the page, there's two columns. There's a column in Nahuatl and there's a column in Spanish. So obviously I can't read Nahuatl because I'm not that smart, but there's really good translations of it. And so to be able to put the see what is omitted from one version of the text, one version of the story, and what is added, or the ways that different points of view are shared bet- or or differ between these two, you know, tellings of the story, because often someone's going to be able to engage with one of it and not the other one. You know, maybe you only know Nahuatl and you don't know Spanish, then you're only going to be able to read half of this book, vice versa for Spanish. And then simultaneously, these were illustrated codices. So there is a third text going concurrently in the images that also sometimes tells a different story than you're getting in the two written uh, written accounts. And that interplay between these three texts simultaneously was so fundamental into A, making me care about the conquest in a way I hadn't previously, B, make me think about the interplay between text and image, and C, Think about the ways that we use images and text to lie, to omit, to declare, and to elide, um, which is what my entire dissertation is about. Nice. Very cool. So the next one I'm going to mention, and I'll mention it briefly because, again, it's one that I have some conflicted feelings about, and that is the book Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Um, All of Orson Scott Card's other garbage uh, to the side, I still think Ender's Game is an excellent book. I think it's really interesting. I think that it's, uh, there's some things to it again that have been highly influential and sort of just how I think about science fiction and things like that. And, um, while a lot of, again, his other stuff doesn't really hold up. I think that Ender's game still is an excellent book that I really, uh, I really enjoy. Uh, and you know, there's some things about it that are heavy. I mean, there's some real brutal violence uh, with kids, uh, you know, between kids and stuff. Uh, but, uh, I think Ender's game still is, is one of those that, uh, definitely has influenced highly kind of how I think about things, at least in, nice. again, in terms of science fiction literature. So, 
All right, the last one I'm going to mention in my influences list is Raymond Williams's Marxism in Literature. <laughs> <laughs> Marxism in Literature is a text about uh, cultural analysis and cultural critique um, through a Marxist lens. It was one of the foundational texts that said, what if we do textual criticism through the lens of Marxism? Um, and that was foundational to both the way that I think about concepts in literature and cultural theory and my politics. So Raymond Williams, thanks, bro. Two, two thumbs straight up. <laughs> Very good. My last really foundational one, which we've talked about at some length, actually pretty early on when we started the podcast, but I need to mention it. I would be remiss if I did not. And that is the original Dune uh, by Frank Herbert. Um, we still see to this day so many ways in which uh, Dune has impacted science fiction and in some ways fantasy. Uh, incredibly foundational book. Shame that some of the other Dune books didn't hold up, and we may circle back around to some of the other things in the Dune world later. Uh, but Dune itself uh, definitely, in my opinion, has withstood the test of time. And as I have reread it, uh, I still quite enjoy it and think that it is a great book. So that is my last foundational entry. Nice. All right, what you got for us next? All right, so moving into books that we just love, that maybe are not as foundational. Mm-hmm. Um, but books that are definitely worth mentioning. Um, the first one I'll mention is The Duology of the Parable of the Sower and the Parable of the Talents by Octavia Butler. Um, I really like Octavia Butler. I've read most of her stuff. I have not read the Pattern Master series, um, but I've read the rest of her stuff. Um, Patternist is on my Kobo to take on vacation. We'll see if I read that or something else during my trip this coming week. Um, but it's the only Octavia Butler I haven't read. I really think she's great. I think everything that I've read of hers is good to great. Um, but Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents are where I think that her ability to write compelling narrative shines most fully. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents are about this mid to post-apocalyptic American society. It's not It's not apocalyptic. It is America in decline. It is America as fallen empire in decline. And things just continually get a little bit worse and a little bit worse and a little bit worse while there's a man running for president saying with the slogan, making America great again. And Ooh. until society breaks, it has an epistemological break and it no longer works the way that it did previously. And so it is about building a new society in the ashes of the society that has fallen um, and building it around this concept. Um, it, this is sometimes called the earth seed duology. Um, and it's the idea of, it's a fictional religion based on the idea that God is change. That is the biggest thing about earth seed um, as a religion. Um and that is what it is. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. That is the idea behind Earthseed as a religion and the society that is built in these two books. Uh, I will forever be sad that the trilogy was not completed. Um, it was supposed to be followed by Parable of the Trickster, um, but it did not get finished before Octavia Butler sadly passed away. So we will never get a third book in the series. 
but it is incredible. It is, I think, some of the finest American fiction of the last 60 years, no question. Very good. Uh, so in my section of things that are kind of things I've read more recently that matter, I'm going to lump a few of these together briefly and mention, um, you know, like I have to say at the wheel of time, just because it has occupied so many hours of my life, I'm still not sure how much I love it all, but it's definitely something that I have invested enough time in that it almost feels like it would be disingenuous to not mention it. And, um, kind of, as a corollary to that, in that uh, lots of books that I have read many times, I am going to mention The Dresden Files by Jim Butcher. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with them at all. Harry Dresden, Wizard for Hire in Chicago, Modern Times. Uh, starts out feeling kind of like a noir detective sort of thing with the uh, twist being that the detective also is a wizard um, and that magic is real. And uh, what initially feels like sort of a case of the book thing then starts to get bigger and bigger and starts tying into all the different supernatural factions throughout the world, including vampires and the Fae and all sorts of things. And by the time you get to the end of book 17, Harry Dresden has put himself in a seriously... Uh, let's say compromising situation, but you totally understand why he got there. They're easy. They're pulpy. The audiobooks for these are fantastic. They're read by James Marsters. In fact, he was so good at this that due to contract issues, he couldn't read. I think it was the 13th book and audible. I Amazon went back and rehired him to reread that book as well, because there was so much outcry from fans that it wasn't him. Um, they're in here. There's 17 books, including, and that does not include a couple collections of sort of side stories. Pretty much every time a new Dresden Files book comes out, I start a book one and I just go all the way through again. So I have made it through some of these books probably four or five times. I really enjoy them. They're not world changing, but they are so much fun and they're incredibly compelling. And uh, I, I had to mention because again, I've given these books a lot of my time, but because I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy them. I have, I have beef with Jim Butcher, but we don't need to talk about it because we're running out of time. Well, you know, I will say there's some <laughs> issues that I definitely have with some things in the books and I don't, uh, I, I was sharing them with one of my children and, and I said to them, I said, Hey, just be aware. There are some issues with uh, some things that he does, but I still, I still like the stories enough, uh, that I, I'm sticking with them. There you go. All right. I'm going to go quick through my other loved ones. Uh, I have three I want to mention really quickly. Um, first off, uh, the book Nada, Nothing by Carmen Laforet. It is a book about the post-war um, uh, Spain set in the 1940s. It's maybe my favorite book. If gun to my head, I think it's my favorite novel. It's very good. Um, highly recommended. Uh, another quick one I would put on here is... Uh, Rayuela Hopscotch by uh, Julio Cortazar. Um, I'm if you're ever at like a, a team building exercise and they're like, "Ooh, what's your desert island book?" My desert island book would be Hopscotch by uh, Julio Cortazar because you don't have to read it in order. It is a counter novel, so you can read the chapters in whatever order you want, and sometimes that can 
reveal things to you in the narrative that you didn't recognize previously. Hmm. Um, and there is like a, it can be read either straightforward chapter one to chapter hundred and whatever. It can also be read with a recommended reading order, which is basically like reading a choose your own adventure book where you start with chapter one and then you move to chapter 17, then you move to chapter 102 and it like jumps you back and forth, or you can just read it in whatever order you want. And it changes your experience with the book. Um, and then lastly, just a book that I really like a lot. I've mentioned it many times here, but it deserves a shout out. Grace of Story Sorcerers by Maria Ying, my book of 2022. I love it. Go read it. It's great. Excellent. I'll wrap up with the last few of my recent ones that I really like. Um, I have to mention Mistborn and really the whole Mistborn series by Brandon Sanderson. I know we've talked about him before. I'm a fan. And Mistborn was the one that really got me into it. As much as I enjoy his big, massive epic, The Stormlight Archive, I think I enjoy Mistborn more. I think that it's in some ways a more interesting world, almost in part because it's not quite as huge and expansive. It feels a little more focused, uh, but I really love the Mistborn series. And in the second chunk of the Mistborn series, the Wax and Wayne books, those are probably two of my favorite characters in modern literature, just because they're so much fun to... Um, to, to sort of hang out with as you read those books. I'm going to throw out Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn, the trilogy by Tad Williams. Uh, it starts with the Dragonbone Chair, uh, the Stone of Farewell, and ends with Two Green Angel Tower. Very much epic fantasy, sort of in the ilk of Tolkien, but, uh, you know, it feels distinct. Uh, his characters that are sort of the elves um, are, are very different, very distinct. And it's a, it's again, focusing on, on Simon, the main character and his growth over the course of the novels. I've read them many times. And in some ways I'd like to think that two green angel tower might be one of the reasons, or at least part of the reason that I got accepted to medical school at Duke. I was in one of my interviews and as kind of a Gotcha. We're going to see, are you well-rounded? The interviewer asked me, what was the last book you read? I had been reading part one of two green angel tower because it's large enough that when they published it in paperback, it's two 1000 page books. And I pulled that Yikes. out of my backpack and I said, well, this is what I was reading while I was waiting for my time with you. And then they asked me about it and I explained to them what it was and they were very interested. And I would like to think that that made them realize that I wasn't just a uh, stick in the mud egghead like some of the people I was interviewing with, but that I actually was a well-rounded human being, whether that's actually true or not, who knows, but I think it helped. And then the final book I have to read or mention, probably my favorite book of all time. And I would say this because when I finished this book, it was a solid three months before I was able to read anything else. Because as soon as I would start another book, I was like, mm, but it's not as good as this book. And that is the debut novel by British author Nick Harkaway. And that book is The Gone Away World. I'm just going to say this about it. Number one, greatest twist in my experience in a book. I literally had to close it, set it down, turn to my wife and said, that just screwed with my brain. I cannot read it more tonight. And all I want to do is read it more tonight. And Look, there are pirates, there are ninjas, and there are mimes. And maybe some of those mimes are pirates, and maybe some of those mimes are ninjas. And that's all you need to know. 
It is insane. It is fantastic. And it is probably my favorite book of all time. Nice. I, uh, it's been on my to read list since you told me about it 15 plus years ago. And I just have never gotten around to it. Yeah, it's okay. But, uh, it's a book that I, I definitely, it's kind of in there where it's like, Ooh, I haven't read that in a while. I need to go back and read it again. So we're, uh, we're going a little long here, but why don't we wrap up with, uh, what are some books that either were bad? We thought were overrated that we want to now we've, we've been, you know, very, uh, we've lauded a number of books. Now let's just crap on some others. Let's do it. Um, I'm going to crap on one that you just talked a lot about. Cause I have to, uh, Good. I don't, I tried, I tried Miss Bourne. I can't do it. I think Brando Sando sucks. I can't do it. I, <laughs> we read, we read that novella for our podcast. And I was like, this is okay. Maybe I'll try a Mistborn. It is not for me, friends. I don't like it. <laughs> That's so good. I'm glad you like it. I know I'll, I have a lot of friends who really like Brando Sando. It ain't, it, I ain't that. It ain't me. And that's okay. Um, another one I will mention that I was talking about with a, a friend just earlier today. This is a book that on paper is so incredibly my shit. Um, but in practice, I think it sucks. And that is the book House of Leaves by Mark Danielewski, um, which is a, a book of epistolary metafiction is how I would describe it. It is a metafictional text that is about a documentary film um, and has a bunch of like epistolary, uh, you know, matter to it. So it is not just like a narrative that you read through. There's like, you know, uh, 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 you know, court filings and documents and transcripts of interviews and all that sort of stuff um, and pretends like it's an academic book um, that is about the creation of this documentary film. Um, but it is so pretentious. I have never <laughs> read a book that is more pretentious than House of Leaves. Um, and I really... I like an epistolary novel. I was thinking just earlier today, man, I haven't read a good epistolary novel in a very long time. I need to read one. Um, and not this one. This one's bad. Don't read it. <laughs> um, and then the last one I'll say that is not, I don't feel as strongly about it being bad as I did those other two, but one that I thought I was really going to like and I was mostly just left cold by is that foundational cyberpunk text Neuromancer by William Gibson. Mm. I see what he was going for. I see the ways in which it is the genesis of so many things I really like, but I didn't care for it. I just didn't really like it that much. Yeah, you know, I read one book by William Gibson years ago. Uh, it was All Tomorrow's Parties. I feel like I was in the middle of something. It just didn't work for me. And uh, kind of his... Uh, I would say counterpart kind of the, at least in my mind, the, the two guys who I kind of always put together is him and Neil Stevenson. Um, mm -hmm. Neil Stevenson, uh, Snow Crash is the only Neil Stevenson book that I read. Uh, and I remember enjoying it, but it has been many, many years. I feel similarly to Snow Crash the way that I do Neuromancer. I see what it's doing. I respect the things that have followed it. I don't think that's, it's not for me either. Yeah. 
like I say, I think I actually did on audible. Maybe that made a difference, but it definitely, it was one of these things that I, I made it through and I was like, okay, okay. But, uh, have I gone back to read anything else by either Neil Stevenson or William Gibson after those two books? No, no, I have not. So all I'll say listeners is if you want early cyberpunk, go read trouble in her friends by Melissa Scott. That's all. All right. It's a better book. It's better than both Snow Crash and Neuromancer put together. So uh, a couple of things that I want to mention that are just bad. Um, look, I already mentioned it in passing. Harry Potter, it's bad. It's poorly written. So bad. It's, it's really, so really bad. poorly written. There are times where J.K. Rowling thinks she's doing one thing, but she's inept enough that she is actually doing the exact opposite. Um, after suffering through many times with many of my children, about halfway through the fourth book with my youngest child, I closed it and I turned to them and I said, I cannot, if you would like to read this, that's on you. And I uh, gave it up and never went back and they're bad. They're just bad. And I don't know, you know, I, I, anyway, I'm going to leave it at that. They're bad. They're just bad. They were, they were bad before she was discovered to be a rank wretched bigot bigot but like that also doesn't help but they were also just bad before then too speaking of bigots uh the rest of the ender books and orson scott card's works in general bad i used to read them a lot i cannot go back they're bad he's bad he should feel bad um the two final ones that i want to mention uh the extra dune books now there is the initial six books by frank herbert they are varying degrees of okay weird uh, but they all are, I would reread any one of those. I may not super be excited to reread some of them. Uh, God Emperor of Dune, I'm looking at you. But I, I still could go back and reread them. However, the ones written by his son and Kevin J. Anderson uh, are trash. They're horrible. They're awful. Uh, they also are bad and should feel bad. And no one should read them. They are so poorly written. One of the things that I appreciated about Frank Herbert at times, he could be very wordy, but there were other times where he was a brilliant economist of words. And he would say in a single sentence, something that in your head, you could create an entire exciting scene out of. Uh, there's a particular scene that I remember feeling that way about in the book, Children of Dune, uh, that really centered on, um, uh, on, on one character. Uh, yeah, Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Herbert are of the, uh, the mindset that why say something in 10 words that you could say in a thousand. And so you're constantly being beaten over the head by things that they do not need to tell you, but they are telling you them again and again and again in such painful and excruciating detail that I just refused to even consider going back. Uh, and then the final one I'm going to mention, and I don't know what the thoughts or feelings are on this series of books now, because it was many years ago that I uh, read some of them, but at about the same time that the wheel of time was chugging along under the hand of, an, you know, Robert Jordan, uh, we had a ponytailed, um, oh, pompous God. looking black turtleneck wearing douche nugget named Terry Goodkind. And he was writing the sort of truth series and I, you know, they were again, very much, they would show up in the, if you like this and here's a one of the wheel of time books, you'll love this. And here's one of the sort of truth books. And I read a number of them and first of all, they're bad. And Terry Goodkind is uh, an absolute misogynist and a uh, really just from the way he writes things. I think he's a horrible person. 
Maybe he's not. Uh, but the things he espouses no, in his books makes me think he's a horrible person. Yeah, I think that's a fair read. And the further along I got into them, the more I realized what garbage they were and how derivative they were, despite the fact that he swears he's never read any other fantasy. These are wholly original thoughts. There are things lifted whole cloth, in particular from The Wheel of Time as well as Dune, that I'm like, it's impossible. It is impossible for you to have so perfectly stolen these ideas uh, and not have you uh, and, and had this just happen by accident. Um, again, they really, they just got worse and worse and worse as they went along and nobody should read them ever. I read too many of them. I regret it. Uh, but nobody should ever make the same mistake I did and do not read them. They're bad. Uh, the main character is a weird combination of this, uh, sex crazed brooding, but at the same time, he's a total Gary stew can do no wrong, perfect in every way, sort of character who is utterly deplorable. And the remainder of the characters are as well. So, uh, screw that dude and his books. Yeah, no, he's a, a wretched, also wretched. Yeah. Yeah. I would say yes. Well, anything else you want to say before we wrap it up? Just go read some books. Books are good. Read some books. Books are good. And also, I would say, don't make yourself read a book that you're not enjoying. You know? I 100%. find myself falling into that sometimes where I'm like, oh, but you know, I'm just going to push on through. I'm going to push on through. No, don't do it. There are so many books that are really good. Uh, and again, everybody's tastes vary. Could be that you dislike many of the books that we talked about and that's okay unless it's the chronicles of perdane and then i will judge you forever but that's okay that's i know that's just just me but yeah if you're not liking a book don't push through move on to something that you do like and you do enjoy and that brings you some type of uh, edification fulfillment or joy in your life because books are amazing and they can do that in a way that uh, i think very few things have the power to do so go and read amen and you know there's there's always more Oh, There's yeah. always more books, so go read something you haven't read before or read something that you, if you're, like you said, if you're reading something that's not good, stop. Nourish yourself with goodness. Absolutely. And on that, we'll go ahead and wrap up and we'll uh, again thank everybody. Thanks for listening. Please uh, subscribe if you have not. Share it if you have a chance and leave us a review, a star rating. All those things help make it more noticeable and let other people find out and uh, hopefully they can join along as well. Any feedback, go ahead and either leave a review and we'll address it there or uh, send us an email at feedback at the middle of culture.com. And until next time, everyone, uh, go just read a good book. Thanks. Thanks.